You're ready to hear my conversation with our Vice President of the Resource Team, Ono Rutten. We talk all about inflation, the impact on commodity prices, and how to think about using commodities during this part of the business cycle. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Ono Rutten. Ono works with our resource team and looks after our precious metals mandate. Ono, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks. Exciting times to be here. It, it certainly is. Uh, as we record in Jan- January 28th, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll take the first question and, and reflect on what's changed since I last talked to your colleague Benoit Gervais back in October. Um, we, as I referenced, we certainly have had a lot of market volatility uh, in the first part of 2022. Uh, we've seen inflation numbers come in much hotter than than were previously expe- expected. Uh, central banks acting. Uh, maybe from your perspective, Ono, what do you view as changed, and what's most fundamental? Uh, for the space that you look after. Yeah, related to themes that we had been talking about in the past, everything is starting to accelerate. Plus, there's a few big changes happening in the world economy that impact our world and the broad markets. First of all, the theme of reshoring, which started, of course, many years ago with trade tariffs and trade barriers, etc., is starting to really take hold now. And there's an accelerated need for reshoring because, of course, the the failure of the supply chain during the pandemic has made it very clear to any country that we need to start rebuilding the manufacturing capacity at home. Right. So that's the first big change. Secondly, the energy transition uh, needed a long lead time from a policy perspective, but it's happening right now. We see massive build-out in solar and wind capacity all over the world. Huge demand for electric vehicles, which consumers are adapting at a very fast rate. And we see the need to strengthen the electrical power grid, which takes a lot of metal demand, especially copper. Um, Thirdly, the underinvestment in resources. We had talked about that, that the past decade was a lost decade where the companies could not reinvest. And we're not convinced that the demand was there for their product. That's now starting to bite. Right. And it's really biting because the demand is there. Durable goods demand has been very strong during the pandemic. And there is no supply response. So this is not just some theoretical concept anymore. The supply is simply simply not there. And we're seeing steel trading in the US at a price that's four times higher than the usual price. Copper has gone up. Lumber was three, four times higher last year, and again, is very strong. And there's simply no supply response possible because the supply isn't there. And lastly, and that's the big surprise, I think, to the federal banks, uh, to the central banks, to the politicians, is the labor force is not there. I guess the pandemic, of course, shifted quite a few people into early retirement or changing lifestyles. We see reduced immigration across the world, Mm -hmm. and the labor force is already maximum utilized. 
we can see it everywhere. You can't get a waiter for a restaurant, let away trying to get a pipe fitter to work in northern Canada at a mine. So in other words, the labor market has tightened up. And these forces combined all lead to a much more structural push for inflation. These are all inflationary pressures. And now we are starting to embed these things more structurally. Initially, the inflation last year that we talked about was just a short demand pool during the pandemic. Everyone wanted durable goods. There was no demand for services. And we got a spike in inflation. Everyone called it transitory. But now it's very clear that there are structural underlyings to inflation. And the labor force knows it. The job market is tight. If you look at the number of vacancies relative to the number of applicants, it's off scale. And what that creates is demand for higher wages. And the indicators are that wage increases are 4 or 5% and still accelerating. And that creates the risk here that we're entering into a wage price spiral, inflationary spiral. Prices go up, wage demands go up, and vice versa. And that's where inflation becomes more embedded and inflation could actually become sticky. So we've seen inflation at the 6% range already, which we haven't seen since the late 70s, early 80s. And hold that thought. That's a long time ago that we saw an environment like that. It's very clear that that inflation will come down this year, just by year over year effects. But it's also becoming very clear to us that it will not fall back to below 2%, Mm. which is the comfy environment that the economy and the markets had been operating in for the past decade. So sticky inflation in the 2 to 4% range creates an environment where the authorities will have to act. Right. Well, maybe I'll, I'll interject there. And, and, and we just are on the heels of the first Fed and Bank of Canada meeting of the year. Um, they, didn't, they didn't act uh, right now to raise rates. They make very clear indications that they'll start to hike uh, in March. Um, in your view, uh, what does the Fed response mean to uh, things like metals, uh, maybe gold in particular, which is often thought of as an inflation hedge? Uh, and, and is the Fed, do you think, able to, to get this right? Well, they, by design, they've been late. I mean, if they hike in March, we've had a year of raging inflation. Right. So to start with a rate hike a year after it's actually there shows you their hands. They want to be late. By design, they want to be late because the overall imperative, politically, monetary, fiscally, is get the economy going. Don't lose the economic momentum. And that means that they will tolerate much higher inflation for much longer, and that by design they're late. But let's assume they act perfectly here, and they're going to hike in March, and they're going to do it in their forecasts. And let's call this the Goldilocks scenario, where the rate hikes are just perfectly timed and of the right magnitude to bring demand a bit into check, get demand moderated somewhat but not lose economic momentum. In that scenario, the Goldilocks, of course, the economy does very well, sure. and inflation bobs around the 2-3% range. That's a very benign scenario for equity markets in general. 
but you can see the nervousness in the equity markets whether we can achieve Goldilocks. Sure. But let's assume they do it right. Equity markets would be happy. Um, value cyclical equities would probably do better than growth equities because rates are rising right. in this environment. Um, and resources should do very well because the demand would be sustained because the economy momentum would continue and resources would be a strong beneficiary. As I said, supply is very constrained. If demand is there, we're going to have a very healthy price environment again this year for the resources. And the equities surely are not pricing in that expectation. The resource equities are anticipating that this is just a short-term price spike and prices are going to fall back. If prices can be sustained at current levels, you would see a very meaningful re-rating. So that's Goldilocks. But now let's go back to my comment that the Fed is actually by design a bit late because they will err on the side of letting things run. In that scenario, inflation continues to be quite high. And as an investor, you have to start thinking about your portfolio. Because if you take a 10-year treasury right now, yielding 1.8%, but inflation running at 4%, you get eroded by 2% a year in real terms. That is a real problem for the Canadian saver who wants to save up for a house, for a cottage, for retirement. Uh, You're eroding your purchasing power. In that scenario, the equity market starts struggling because that inflation will feed into wage inflation, margin compression for the companies, etc. But hard assets and companies that have hard business models with pricing power, they would do right quite well. To think about producers of, of hard resources, the demand would be there and the price, you would get real pricing power. Because in this scenario, things run hot and pricing will run hot as well for commodities. So in that case, focus on good quality equities that have real pricing power and focus on resources Uh, and focus on gold. Because gold is the ultimate asset that compensates you for the loss of real pricing power. It's the only asset that always reprices immediately. Um, and offsets the erosion in purchasing power. But the beauty of gold in that scenario is as well, that if the Fed loses control too late, then gold helps you as risk insurance. And that's the key role for gold in a portfolio, is to provide that insurance to when things go wrong. I would call it the risk of policy error. Fed is too slow, too late, and inflation gets out of control. This price-wage spiral keeps on going out of control. Gold would initially, of course, benefit from this raging inflation, but gold would also benefit once the Fed panics or when they really have to step on the brakes. The last time we saw that was in the late 70s with the Volcker intervention. It's not a pretty scenario. But gold benefits in that scenario because gold becomes the ultimate safe haven asset. So I would say resources are well positioned in the Goldilocks scenario and the running hot scenario. And as things run too hot or things get out of control, gold becomes a more important part of your portfolio. Interesting. So it sounds like 
um, with gold uh, really hedging on either of, of the uh, too hot or, or hiking too quickly, uh, an accurate hedge on that. One of the questions I have for you on gold is last year um, we saw sort of the scenario that I would have imagined gold would do very well in. You have uh, inflation running very hot. You have uh, geopolitical tensions uh, continuing to rise, um, those types of things. Uh, but gold, in fact, was sort of flat uh, during last year. You, is there anything that makes you feel like that um, correlation is broken down at all, or it sounds like you're, you're committed to it? Maybe explain the view on last year for gold. Yeah, let, let's track back one more year to 2020, yeah. when gold did exactly what it was supposed to do. Money supply went up 40%. All the central banks were printing, all the governments were spending, markets of course, collapsed, and gold had a great year, 23% return on gold, 44% return on the McKenzie Precious Metals Fund. So after a year like that, such a sharp run-up, gold typically rests. Okay. So I think the tone was already set for, okay, we, we priced in a lot of distress in the system already. But most importantly, last year, the expectation was that inflation was not going to run away. The word last year was transitory, transitory inflation, just a short-term blip. And gold trades on the expectation about future inflation. It does not trade on the inflation of today. So real inflation last year, of course, went to 6 7%. But the inflation expectations in the market, they peaked at 2.3%. That's what the market said five years out is inflation. So the market participants said, we don't need gold here because everything is under control, nothing to see here. Uh, that has changed, I think, now going into 2022. And as a funny anecdote at the Fed, where they're studying this, uh, one of the Fed governors now has said to his entire study department, anyone using the word transitory, has to put a dollar into a jar. <laughs> so we're not talking transitory anymore here. We have to think about the structural drivers of inflation. Something has really changed. The swear jar that includes transitory. I like it a lot. Um, oh, no, I want to uh, circle back to some points that you made in your opening comments. There was actually quite a bit in there uh, that we could dive into each and every one, but they would, we probably don't have the time for it. Uh, you talked about reshoring energy transition. What I wanted to pause on was the uh, concept of the underinvestment in resources. Uh, this is something that's becoming more and more apparent or more and more talked about, which is um, that there seems to be a lack of investments in sort of um, finding new oil to bring online uh, to meet uh, ra uh, raging demand uh, for this. Um, how, what's, first of all, what's the root cause of this? What, what do you think some of the, the problems are with it? And then how does it get solved? Well, first of all, and then my colleague Benoit referred to it in, in the podcast late last year, uh, of course, resources were for a decade in a bear market. Right. That was reflected in the fund performance at the time. And we all know that there was no need, no desire for resource companies to invest a single dollar. And the lead times in resources are very long. I mean, metals in particular, a copper mine these days takes seven to 10 years to bring online. Right. So if you don't invest for a decade in new capacity, 
Remember, we overinvested in capacity in the China cycle earlier this this century. Mm-hmm. Um, once you underinvest, the the lagged effect of that is quite long. Right. So that's one thing that we're experiencing. Secondly, COVID brought a lot of disruption to the supply chain, and it's still going through the supply chain, also at the mine sites. Then the geopolitical forces play a role where resource nationalism and labor radicalism is also playing a role. And we're seeing more and more countries increasing royalties, taxes, further reducing the incentive to invest. And then lastly, there's the whole environmental perspective, where getting a permit these days is a lot more difficult than it used to be. There's a lot of not in my backyard um, policies in many countries. And only yesterday we saw in the U.S. a auction of a Gulf of Mexico big concession being counseled by the courts on environmental grounds about the government not taking the future emission of that oil into account. So we're seeing regulatory bar- regulatory barriers to bringing right. new capacity online. Put that all together, and even now there is no investment, meaningful investment in new capacity. Hmm. And the demand is there. And the last thing you need, of course, to make how do you resolve this is one government allowing new capacity to be permitted and to be built. But secondly, you need the capital markets also allow these companies to start to reinvest. And right now, if you look at the multiples that these resource companies are trading at, shareholders are saying, you are not going to reinvest in capacity. Can we please first harvest some returns, some cash flows that we haven't seen for a long time? Right. Plus, if the market is not paying for the current production, these companies are trading at one times, three times EBITDA right now. Why invest if the equity market doesn't even give you any credit for your current production? So let's first achieve a share price level that's high enough that shows that the market wants you to be producing and that you get rewarded for future growth. So there's still a lot that needs to be happening before we see new capacity coming online. I guess um, just maybe a follow-up on that. I mean, with you've laid out a scenario that's very supportive for prices, commodity prices, where we have uh, fairly strong demand, and it doesn't seem like demand is going to diminish, particularly on uh, some of the metals that are fundamental for this green transition, which is another thing that, that you, you touched on. But also just we're seeing demand for oil and gas and and, uh, and that come back fairly strongly. And, and unfortunately, the grid's not at a point right now where we have enough re- renewable capacity, and that all takes time to, to come on. Um, so it strikes me that there's just a lot of money to be made in a short to medium term by producing more oil at a higher price. You know, would you see that getting fulfilled? I mean, my, my capitalist side of me is just saying there's there's this there's this opportunity to make a lot of money. Someone's going to get in there and do it. But you're you're suggesting otherwise, or or is it government, or I guess put a finer uh, uh, line. Uh, let, let, let me put some force of reason into this. Sure. this happy Thank you. Thinking. <laughs> First of all, prices last year spiked very high in many commodities. So let's take lumber as an example, where we used to live in a world of $350, $450 lumber. Last year, we were looking at one stage at $1,600 lumber. 
that is not a good situation for anyone in the industry. Because as you know, everyone who was doing their deck yeah. or planning to do their deck stopped doing it. Because it was the lumber was not available and if it was available it was unaffordable. So you actually destroy demand on a short term basis. Lumber prices came as a result way down. But hey, surprise, they came down to five, six hundred dollars for a week, and then they bounced off that level. And since then they've been operating between the five hundred and a thousand dollars. Now it gets interesting from an equity perspective, because now you've proven that there is a new price level, a new equilibrium. And that's when the equities can start re-rating. Because the lumber equity is never priced in $1,600 lumber. Everyone said sure. that's a spike. Yeah, Look okay. straight through it. But if you get confidence that lumber prices can be five, six hundred, $700 sustainably for the next several years, the cash flows that come with that, the company earns its entire market value back in those three years. Because we're talking cash, free cash flow yields in the 15 to 20, 25, 30% range. So that's where your enthusiasm is is justified because in that scenario, there's a lot of capital coming back and we see a lot of special dividends buybacks occurring in that sector in particular. Um, so I think a fair outlook for this year is for prices actually not to go higher. That's not what investors should be looking for. It's for the current prices to hold or for the prices to correct, but to correct to a level that's still well above the mid to mid price scenario that equity investors like ourselves look at. Right. That's, that's where the revaluation of these companies can occur. And if you trade at two times EBITDA, and let me go here on the limb and say, let's trade at four times EBITDA, sure. <laughs> still well below what the yeah. normal market multiple would be. Yeah, then you're looking at a doubling of the equity. Everything else equal. So yeah, that's where our enthusiasm is still. Yeah. Right. And in in that re-rating of the equity should give the cat at least the companies the ability to reinvest in sort of production. Is that the idea? And then they'll bring more production online, or is it just simply a re-rating and that's good for the equity price? Well, let's talk about your the the commodities that have that very structural demand pool because they help us with the transition. Right. And let's highlight lumber, because lumber is much cleaner to use to build your house than steel or cement, sure. much more sustainable. Think about copper. I mean, hydro here has to invest, what is it, 10 billion over the next right. years to reinforce the grid. And we need all that copper cabling to go to the windmills and the solar cells. Uh, in both those industries, um, we are supply constrained. The lumber basket is actually shrinking in BC, thanks to all the forest fires and the beetle. And right. BC used to be one of the biggest wood baskets for North America. So lumber capacity is constrained. Lumber demand is great. And in copper, like I said, the lead time for copper mines is seven to 10 years. Only three years ago, we were still at a price level where reinvestment was not justified. Hmm. And I look at the pipeline of copper projects out there, I can name you the real projects on one hand, and that's wow. it for the entire world. So no, I don't see the reinvestment potential. 
And that's a good thing because resource companies historically were way too eager to reinvest. <laughs> I love it that they don't have the opportunity to reinvest because that makes it easier for me to make the argument to them, give me the money back. Right. Great. Um, well, Ona, maybe I'll, I'll finish it with one last thought to get your comments on. It sounds like this might all be uh, circular to reinforce some of the inflationary pressures that you talked about if you're talking about re-rating a lot of these commodity prices. Uh, would you agree with that perspective? Uh, and does that sort of reinforce this idea of, um, of both resources in the Goldilocks scenario and the hot scenario and then gold um, and everything but Goldilocks? Well, let me highlight that resources, oil is very important for inflation, global inflation. And right. that's why having exposure to oil in your portfolio historically has been the best inflation edge for a normal investor. There's that circularity between oil and inflation. Right. The other commodities are too small to truly drive structural inflation. The comments I made about the labor force and the tightness of labor markets, that's of course the crux of the argument why inflation is probably going to stay higher. The labor force is tight and we can no longer draw upon this infinite pool of labor in Asia that we have been drawing upon for the past decades. So that is the structural inflation driver. But once we have that inflation, for whatever reason, the risk of policy error is elevated because the Fed is late and is in a very tricky situation. And this world is very much indebted. So the exposure to credit and to rates is that much higher than what we've seen any time before. And lastly, the market participants, including many people in the financial industry, have never seen or dealt with inflation at this level. Because the last time it was there was in the late 70s and the early 80s. Many were not there. Sure. So you can see panicky reactions in the market already occurring right now. What does this mean? So if you want to be properly exposed to all this, one, you say you have an allocation to resources as a good way to actually hedge your portfolio investments against inflation. McKenzie Resource Fund has oil, has energy, has gas, has materials, has the copper, the lumber. Uh, but we also have an active allocation in there towards gold. Okay. And if we see things going off the rails, if the risk of policy error becomes too high, we will increase that allocation to gold. Normal allocation is 10, 20%. In 2020, we were in the 30, 40% at some stage. Okay. We are active allocators of that gold component to help managing risk. So that's one way for a McKenzie investor to get exposure to these themes while having some insurance. The ultimate portfolio insurance is, of course, to have a 5 to 10% allocation to gold, precious metals equities through the cycle. Do not try to time it. Don't be too cute. Just always have some insurance in the portfolio against these unforeseen events. And with geopolitical risks, with monetary risks increasing, that is a good place to be, to have an anti-correlated asset class sitting there in the background of the portfolio. So that's the argument to have that 
on the site. And that insurance doesn't cost you. It has actually returned positively over the past three, five years. So what's better than to have some portfolio insurance that's actually not costing you anything? Let's end it on that note. Ono, thanks very much for spending the time with me. This was uh, fascinating. Uh, I look forward to having you back. Thank you, Matthew. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 